This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. And let me wish you, first of all, a very happy day of Pentecost when we celebrate the gift of the Holy Spirit poured out by the ascended Jesus on his church. So we're going to talk about that a little today. Our children can go off to their time of ministry while the rest of us open up the Word of God and hopefully encounter the Spirit of Jesus afresh. We're turning not to Acts chapter 2, which I preached on last year at this, ch- at this time, and you can find that on our podcast if you'd like to listen to that message, the story of the disciples praying and seeking God in Jerusalem. And then the Spirit of God descends upon them in tongues of divided fire. They begin speaking in tongues. These God-fearing Jews from all over the Roman Empire hear the wonders of the living God being declared in their own languages. Peter preaches salvation in Jesus, and he tells them the promise of the Holy Spirit is for you and for your children and for all that are far off. So distance and time do not cut us off from the promised Holy Spirit. God gives him afresh to every generation. So we're not going to turn to Acts chapter 2, but we are going to turn to the book of Acts, to Acts chapters 11 and 13. And I want us to meditate today on the church in Antioch as kind of the fruits and the sign of the poured out spirit at Pentecost, and we'll see what this, the experience, the story of this church has to say to us today. So we're going to be beginning in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Listen to the word of God. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of peoples. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. And then jumping over a chapter to the first three verses of Acts 13. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, 
Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. This is the word of the Lord. And this amazing story of the church at Antioch and the beginning of the spread of the gospel past the the circle of Jews to the whole Roman world, to the Gentiles, would never have happened without the persecution of the church in Jerusalem. Satan was doing his best to stamp out the people of God and the little spark of the gospel that was flaming forth in that city. And his very act of trying to stamp out this fire ended up scattering those sparks far and wide. And people who never would have left the church in Jerusalem, what was comfortable, what was familiar, were forced to leave through the actions of persecution. Designed, of course, by Satan, but behind them, we can see the the sovereign hand of God working in history to spread the gospel of his son. And some people from Cyrene, which was, a, which was basically modern Libya, and from Cyprus, come to Antioch to plant a church. Antioch is on the coast in the Roman province of Syria. It's now on the Turkish, just on the Turkish side of the border. And Antioch was actually the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Rome, Alexandria, Antioch had somewhere between a quarter of a million and half a million people. This is a huge, bustling port city, quite different from the very conservative world of Jerusalem. And amazingly, these disciples from Cyprus and Cyrene experience the powerful hand of God upon them as they begin to share the gospel with the Jews in that city. And then, Luke tells us, they began to speak with Greeks also. What a significant sentence. Right before this story, we read of Peter encountering the Gentile centurion Cornelius. He realizes that the Gentiles are not unclean. God wants to have fellowship with them just like everyone else. And now the Christians are taking the first steps to go beyond their tight little Jewish circles to share, hesitantly at first, the gospel with the Gentiles. And great numbers of people, Jews and Greeks, put their faith in Jesus and begin to form this community. The mother church in Jerusalem hears the news there. They're uncertain, they're a bit suspicious of the strange things going on in Antioch, and they send Barnabas up to check it out. Barnabas is a good guy. He's not named the son of encouragement for nothing. He shows up not to criticize. He immediately sees this is the grace of God at work. He has no bones to pick with anyone. He's just celebrating God is at work, and he exhorts them, keep on doing what you're doing. Stay true to the Lord. But he's not just there to say nice things and encourage them. He realizes there are certain needs that this fledgling church has. And the first thing Barnabas does is to go up to Tarsus in Cilicia to find Saul, the Pharisee who'd been radically converted to Jesus a number of years ago and is now in isolation, studying the scripture, seeking the will of God, And Barnabas realizes Saul is going to be the perfect guy for this church. 
He travels up to Tarsus, brings Saul back with them. And then for the next year, Barnabas and Saul begin to instruct the church. What a year that must have been in Antioch. Barnabas in the morning, Saul or Paul in the afternoon, laying down solid doctrine, opening up the scriptures, giving encouragement, establishing this church in the grace of God. These Jews who have been steeped in the Old Testament and perhaps in legalism and ritualism, these Greeks and these Gentiles who are coming from all sorts of crazy pagan backgrounds, now they're sitting side by side hearing the word of God being laid down. There's also a prophetic ministry arriving to this church as Agabus and other prophets come up from Jerusalem and begin to proclaim the word of the Holy Spirit to this church. And in chapter 13, those few verses there, we can see there were prophets and teachers being established in this church in Antioch. Spirit-gifted men who are building up the church in the word of God. What this new, this new church needs most of all is to hear the voice of God speaking to them. And so we have these teachers, Barnabas and Saul at least, opening up the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament scriptures, and going through the law and the writings and the prophets, and demonstrating all these things point to God's Messiah, to the Christ, to the hope of the world. And they're getting a strong apostolic foundation in this church, making them strong in the Word of God. And then the prophets speak up, and they announce, this is the Word of God for today. This is what the Holy Spirit, this is His direction for life and for ministry and for mission here and now. In that church, there was no contradiction and no tension between the ministries of teacher and prophet. Unfortunately, in the church today, we tend to divide those ministries. The teachers all become Presbyterians. The prophets are all Pentecostals. They're off in their own streams. In the New Testament, there's no separation or contradiction. No one thought it was weird. No one thought it was in competition. Word and spirit, let's have them both together. We're not going to choose which wing of the airplane is better. We need both of them absolutely to know what God is saying to us. And Luke lists for us these, these five key leaders, these five prophets and teachers in Acts chapter 13, which I think is deeply significant, these people that he names. There's Barnabas, first of all, the trusty son of encouragement. Barnabas is from Cyprus. Then there's Simeon called Niger, which in Latin means black. And Niger very likely was a dark-skinned man, quite possibly from Ethiopia or sub-Saharan Africa. We have Lucius of Cyrene from North Africa. We have this guy, Menaean, a kind of foster brother of Herod the Tetrarch, who's been brought up in deep privilege and nobility. And he's got all these powerful connections and influence. Now all these things are being offered in service to Jesus and in his mission. And we've got Saul from Tarsus in Cilicia, modern-day Turkey. Not a single one of these five guys is from Antioch or even from Syria. They're all outsiders. We've got this highly diverse team of core leaders, 
no doubt reflecting a highly diverse church of people from all over the Roman Empire. And I think what we're reading about in Acts chapter 11 and Acts chapter 13 is, dare I say it, an international church in a multicultural city made up of expats, students, migrants, diplomats from all over the world. Very different from the mother church in Jerusalem. And I think what happened in Antioch, the gospel leaping over that divide from Jew to Gentile, could not have happened in Jerusalem. It was only in Antioch, in this particular setting, that the Christians, as their first call to here, begin to speak to the Greeks. The Christian mission needed Antioch, this major port city with these many languages and races and ethnicities, mixing and socializing and doing business together and being in the marketplace and going to the baths. These are the perfect conditions for the gospel to make that cross-cultural jump beyond Jewish religion, language, and culture. What we see in Antioch is the ongoing fruit of Pentecost, the Spirit of God overcoming centuries-old racial, linguistic, ethnic, cultural divides to form an exciting new people of God in this city. It is interesting that in the book of Acts, all the action takes place in cities. The Roman Empire was not that highly urbanized. The vast majority of people were out in the country farming. But in Acts, everything happens in cities. And of course, the story of the Bible does not begin in a city. It begins in the garden. But Adam and Eve are called to multiply and to fill the earth and, in effect, to create civilization, which will mean building cities. So even after the fall, the first thing that the human race does is to start building cities. And of course, in a fallen world, the city offered safety from the hostile wilderness, the opportunity for trade and for collaboration, and a central shrine to fulfill the confused religious impulses of the first human beings. And as agricultural technology developed and irrigation systems and the plow and all these kinds of things, it began to free more people up to go beyond subsistence farming and to create cities where priests and artisans and merchants could build this community. And even though the human race is alienated from God, humanity cannot help growing, developing, and fulfilling the cultural mandate that God has given human beings. Of course, as we see in Genesis, cities have great capacity for evil. There is far greater evil that is possible in a city than out in the country. Because, because of their dense population, because there are so many human beings evident, sin is just more concentrated and more evident in the city. But because human beings are divine image bearers, 
and they have not completely lost the image of God, in this city we also see far greater opportunities for human good to emerge. And the human beings try to organize themselves in the book of Genesis. In chapter 11, they gather together. They try to build this tower of Babel to heaven based on a single human language and a single human culture. And God doesn't want the city to be built up in that way. He scatters the city. He introduces new languages. He confuses and divides the builders, and he scatters the inhabitants of the city. This is not how God wants the city to be built, as a monoculture focused inward on humanity's possibilities. But in the plan of God, this multiplication of languages is more than a curse. It's a kind of hidden blessing. Because God wants to, to open up wonderful new possibilities within humanity to create a lasting city of peace and justice and human flourishing. All designed toward the new Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 1. Biblical story begins in the garden and ends up in this glorious city that descends from heaven. There will not be a single language, a single culture, a single race. God's plan is for a city that is wondrously diverse because a single language, a single race, a single culture are not enough to proclaim and to reflect the glorious, multifaceted nature of God's beauty. And in Scripture, the city is actually not just a human evil distraction. It's central to God's plans for humanity. And in the book of Acts, we see the Spirit of God empowering the people of God to be kind of a demonstration model of the new Jerusalem, to be a city within the city. And so in Acts, we see the gospel goes from city to city to city to city, from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And this is all happening at an unprecedented time of human migration. The Roman Empire might be harsh and oppressive, but it has broken down a lot of the barriers to travel and to trade, and people are moving around the Mediterranean like they never have before. There are Roman and foreign auxiliary troops who are retiring, they're settling new colonies, new cities, slaves from one area of the, the empire being captured and transported and sold to the other end of the empire, there's merchants moving around, there's all sorts of movement happening especially by sea. Once the Romans conquer the pirates in the Mediterranean, they basically have created this waterfront empire around the Mediterranean where people can travel quite smoothly and efficiently most of the year. The sociologist Rodney Stark studied the growth of the early church. And he discovered that by the end of the first century, you know, 60 years after the book of Acts. 24% of inland cities had a Christian church. 64% of port cities. The gospel was traveling by ship 
not just by professional missionaries like Paul and the apostles, but by Christian businessmen and diplomats and people who were traveling for their own personal reasons are going around sharing the gospel in the cities they go to, and new churches are springing up. So we should picture the early Christian churches as beginning in densely populated port cities that reflect the incredible diversity of the Roman Empire. These churches are ethnically, culturally, linguistically mixed. There's many members in every church are not from that city. They have origins from elsewhere in the empire. And they're all speaking Greek as a common tongue, as the international business language. And I think because there are so many migrants who are far from home in a new city, open to new experiences, questioning their old traditions, they're probably far more open to the gospel in these port cities than they would have been in their villages back home. And so these port cities begin to host churches, and the church begins to spread from just a few hundred Jewish believers at Pentecost to something that is going to take over the Roman Empire in just a few hundred years. And this was strategic, I believe, on the part of Paul and the other apostles. Even though only a minority of the people in the empire were urban dwellers, they're planting churches strategically in cities knowing that that cultural influence will eventually spread to the countryside. And here we are today, jumping forward 2,000 years, in a time of massive urbanization. In 1950, 30% of the world was living in cities. Today, it's 55% and growing fast. And according to the International Organization for Migration, there are about 270 million people around the world who are living outside of their home countries, their countries of birth. People like you and I, 270 million more of us. And the vast majority of these people are moving to cities. And these global cities, of course, are their nodes of innovation, aren't they? Where all the smart people, all the talented people, all the money, all the multinational corporations and institutional and, and educational organizations go for the very best. And all the world's smartest, best, wealthiest people go to these cities. Of course, there is a dark side to all this because it's not just the smart and the wealthy moving to cities. At the bottom of society in the world, there's this migrant labor force toiling on construction projects or service jobs in places like Dubai where 90% of the population are foreign migrant workers. And there is a dark side. And thinking of the Roman world in the book of Acts and our world today, I can't help but see a very strong similarity between those two worlds. Where people live in crowded apartment buildings where the person across the hall from you has the smell of strange food coming out of their door. 
They're playing different music. They're speaking a different language at home. They're worshiping different gods, perhaps. That was the very world in which the Spirit of God was moving at the time of Pentecost. And where the same Spirit of Pentecost is moving today in our world. You know, Tbilisi has been an international city for a very long time. One or 200 years ago, Georgians were a minority in this city. And the streets were filled with Armenians and Azeris and Russians and Persians and Jews. People saw all sorts of strange garments and headdresses and languages. And of course, in our city now, even the last five years since we moved here, more and more international students and diplomats and business people and professionals are coming to this city. And when I think of what God did and how he used the church at Antioch, it makes me wonder, do we not have a special opportunity as an international church in this city to be used by God, to be used by the Spirit for the kingdom of Jesus? I'm not saying that comes easily or automatically simply because all us foreigners are in the same room together. International churches are very strange and difficult churches. Because almost all of us are transients. We're here for three years, maybe five years, six years for our students, and then we tend to move on somewhere else, and it's very hard when people are constantly coming and going to foster deep relationships, to really get to know people, and to bind as a community. And of course, we have these difficulties of cross-cultural relationships, don't we? It's hard to cross those barriers. It's easy to be romantic about ethnic diversity and the riches of the nations, but it's a lot harder to become friends with someone who has a very different life experience than you and seemingly nothing in common. It's a lot easier to build friendships in monocultures, where everyone looks like you, talks like you, thinks like you, very easy, because the fewer barriers that people have to cross, the easier it is to bond. And that's why I'm sure the church in Jerusalem had a much easier time building community than the church in Antioch did with all these foreigners and expats and strangers coming together. You know, as expats and students, we're all experiencing the difficulty of living away from home, aren't we? We're experiencing isolation, homesickness, cultural stress, just the frustration and irritation. Everything here is 20 to 30% more difficult than it would be at home, at least. And it's tempting to view a church like this as a comforting oasis where you can relax and escape from that stress and just be nourished and fed and cared for and hear your language and sing your familiar worship songs. And it's easy to treat this church as a kind of amenity for foreigners for our own private personal use. And our desire for community could degenerate into a kind of consumer demand that undermines Jesus' call for us to do mission together in this city. 
It's easy to romanticize international churches, but it's really hard. And in the flesh, basically impossible to manufacture it. And we need to be seeking the help of the Holy Spirit. I believe these things happen in Antioch only because there was a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit on that church, and it was the grace of God that was evidently at work. That's what Barnabas realized when he showed up. He didn't credit it to the amazing leadership strategy of the leaders in this church. He realized this is just God doing something very special and very miraculous. Now, we need the Holy Spirit especially to keep all of us focused on the crucified and risen Jesus. Because we're coming together where the only thing that we have in common is the confession, Jesus is Lord. He's Lord over my nation, my race, my language, my ethnicity, my culture, all my preferences are submitted to him, and we bow before Jesus as Lord and enter into his kingdom. And guys, we live in a world increasingly marked by fear, by suspicion, by hatred, by xenophobia, the fear of the stranger. And when that's overcome, that is a powerful demonstration of the spirit of Pentecost. You know what the Greek word for hospitality is? Philozenia. That means love of the stranger. Not xenophobia. Philozenia. We love the stranger. And that call to hospitality is emphasized again and again in the New Testament. The sign of the Spirit's presence is that you love people. You love people who are different from yourself. And then we welcome one another as God in Christ has welcomed us because Jesus loves the stranger and he shows hospitality to the outsider. And when we begin to do that as the people of God, and we experience the Spirit's empowerment to cross those barriers, then our city and the outside world will see that this is a place where there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Colossians chapter 3. And this is a unity that's not a product of a human-driven diversity program, which always fail and fall in envy and jealousy and division. It's a sign of the lordship of Jesus. It's a sign of the presence of the Holy Spirit building this new city of God. It's a foretaste of the healing of the nations promised under God's Messiah. I believe the Spirit of God is calling us to seek His face, to get out of thinking of this church as our comfortable, comfortable little place, 
and to give us, we need him to give us a vision of the possibilities of an international church in this international city. I want to challenge you to ask God to transform your own heart. It's okay to come here to be blessed. We all need to be blessed. We all have needs. This is a difficult calling to be living overseas. But ask God to open your heart, to give you that vision, to see that there's something more for you here than just receiving the grace of God. He wants you to pass it on. I want to challenge you to reach out and love in this church to people who are unlike you. It's easy for us to glob together with the people who are like us. I want to challenge you to start reaching across those barriers to people who have a different skin color, speak a different home language, or from a different country, different stage in life than you, and recognize these are my brothers and sisters. This is the new family of God. And we need to be seeking together to experiencing and expressing the love of God for the tens of thousands of foreigners in this city. This church should be much bigger. And the other international churches in this city, we want them to be much bigger. Because there are people from all over the world in this city who are isolated, who are alone, who are confused, and perhaps open to encountering God in a way they never would be back in their home countries. And God has sent you to this city from wherever you're from to play a part in that. Not just to speak to the Jews, but perhaps to speak to the Greeks also. And to trust that God wants to use us to build his kingdom in this city. Obviously, guys, we cannot do this in the flesh. We're too small, we're too weak, we're too sinful, we're too selfish. But this is what Jesus wants to do through his spirit. So, shall we bow our heads and pray and ask for his help? Holy Spirit, we turn to you, recognizing that you have called us to great things, and yet we are very small, and we are very weak, and honestly, we're quite lazy and selfish. And we open up our hearts to you and offer ourselves as living sacrifices for the mission of the kingdom of Jesus. We have offered ourselves to him as our Savior and our Lord, and we do want his glory to shine in this city in this region, in this world. We believe that there are many people in this city whose names you know, whom you have written down in the book of life, who have not yet put their faith in Christ. Lord, forgive us for being so selfishly focused on our own blessing. Help us to be a blessing to the nations whom you have brought to this city. Lord, we pray for the power, for the presence of your Holy Spirit so that Jesus might be glorified, so that Christ might be seen and worshipped as all and in all. In his mighty name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship Jesus. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at TICF hyphen georgia.org. Thanks for listening.